Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message today is, This is Torture. This is Torture. Uh, my wife, Gretchen, and I, we have three kids who are all, uh, pr- almost all teenagers now. Um, Zeke is technically 12. Cohen just turned 14 two days ago. Crazy style. Wow. It was, uh, so we celebrated his birthday yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, one of the things that I have noticed about my kids, uh, we believe in uh, doing chores at our house. Anybody a chore family? You're just like... Man, I remember when I was a kid, my dad told me I would, I would complain about chores, and I'd be like, why do we have to do this? And he's like, because if I wanted to do it, I wouldn't have children. And uh, I was like, what a weird thing to say. And uh, I've, I've, I haven't said it to my kids, but I think it. I think it sometimes. And so we believe in doing chores. There's chore charts at our house, and we make our kids do chores. And um, for the most part, they're pretty decent at making their chores happen. But uh, there are moments where they forget or the chore chart changed, or there was something that they forgot to do, and they're in the middle of another activity, and we asked them to do it, and they flip out on occasion. Now, I know this is probably just my kids, and your kids are better and holier than that, but uh, man, they just, they, they don't like it. They, they will freak out, and they'll just be like, why? And they'll say all sorts of things to make me feel bad about making them do chores, and it never works on me. Um, you know, just like, and that's one of the things they'll say, this is torture. You're torturing us. We're not your slaves. And I'm like, that's an insult to real slavery. Okay. You guys have it so great here. Um, like they'll, they'll say like, this is so mean. None of my friends have to do chores. Why do we have to do this? And, uh, sometimes I dignify those questions with an answer, but most of the time I'm just like, I'll just point, you know what I mean? And they'll know what that means. And they just hate it. They hate being drawn away from this thing that they're doing and have to go do this other thing. It's a nuisance. It's a frustration to them because to them, the point of life is to play as many rounds of this video game as they possibly can, to text as many friends in a day, you know what I mean? To lay out as many exciting outfits that can be worn in the next week, Zeke. So it's like they just have their own things that they love. And here's what I think is unique is that we can sort of see this in in a lot of kids. This is the way kids behave towards finding out that they have to contribute and do work. But I think that even as adults, some of us have a hard time shaking this perspective that we had as kids, right? We can tend to view work as whatever annoying obligation interrupts us from doing what we actually want to do, right? That's work to us. Uh, enjoyment, um, you know, fun, the point of life is to do the things that you like. And then work is the stuff that you have to do that takes you away from being able to do this other stuff. It's whatever's on whatever list is given to you by a mom and or boss to do things that you don't want to do to contribute and pull your own weight. And, you know, we all know people that you uh, have this view to a, to a, such an extent where they only want to work at a job that doesn't feel like work. And those are hard to come by, by the way. They're like, man, I will, I'm not too proud. I'll do anything. 
as long as it's fun all the time and nobody tells me what to do and there are no expectations and lots of perks and all the feedback is restricted to encouragement only. And if you've ever talked to a millennial, you um, <laughs> will often have the response of like, is this a job we're talking about or just a birthday party you want to go to? I don't know <laughs> what we're talking about right now. Because real jobs are often work. And we also know people that, you know, that they just, they hate their jobs. You know, uh, they, they work hard at it. They just hate it. They sink into a funk before they go in. They complain constantly. When they're there, they're basically just sort of watching the clock, counting the minutes until they can finally leave and go do something that they actually like, like drink, you know? I thought we were going to be real during this series. I don't know. You guys tell me what you want, okay? I thought you wanted me to be real about real life. And I get it. I mean, I get it. Uh, it's, it the, the thing of it is, it is hard when you hate your job, but you need the money, right? And, and you're not really sure like what you would do if you didn't do this because you've got bills to pay. And your life sort of becomes this survival cycle of gritting your teeth, grinding it out, and daydreaming about your days off. And this seems to be your existence. And some days you really want to quit, but you're not going to. Because if you're like me, you have been, it's been driven into your mind since you were a kid that like responsible people work and you want to pull your own weight and you want to pay your own way and you don't want to be a burden to other people. And that's a noble thing. And if you don't think this way, you probably should think this way a little bit that you want to pull your own weight and pay your own way and not be a burden to others. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament actually writes directly to this idea in a letter that he writes called Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He says this, Dear brothers and sisters, stay away from so-called Christians who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they receive from us. We were not idle when we were with you, we worked hard day and night so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. And we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Wow. Pretty strong and straightforward. So we're not even to the altar call part and some of you are like, kick kid out, right? You're just, I don't know what the spirit is speaking to you. It's just teasing you guys, calm down. Some of you may be hung up on the language. Um, what does idle mean, right? That's not really a word that we use very much except for maybe talking about cars every once in a while. Um, but it means this, to avoid work, to do nothing, or to do nothing of purpose. In other words, you can actually demonstrate a lot of activity and technically still be idle. And what the Apostle Paul's trying to get across here is that real Christians aren't freeloaders. And I gotta tell you, this is something that really blew people's minds when they sat back and watched the early church and early Christians, that they were people who weren't afraid of hard work, but at the same time, they gave away so much of what they got. And they couldn't understand this. Like, you wanna work hard to take care of yourself, but then you're also generous as a way of taking care of and bettering the lives of others. Like, so many people could not wrap their head around this Christian work ethic. I also want to point out about the verse that we just read that it says that those who are unwilling to work will not eat, not those who are unable to work, okay? 
And that is a whole category of people. And uh, that is not what we're talking about here. There's a big difference between being unwilling to do something and being unable to do something. And it is a mistake to look down on people who are unable as if they are unwilling. And I just want to give that caveat. But you, you probably fit into the category that most do, right? You are willing, okay? You work, you're not lazy. But maybe there's this part of you that is overwhelmed. And not because the job that you're doing is hard, but because it's bland. You drudge in and you do the thing, but you're, you're bored, which is weird because at one point you prayed and asked other people to pray with you to get the job that you have right now, which you currently hate. But what once seemed so exciting now feels excruciating and you wish you were anywhere but here. And maybe you have these moments where you find yourself wondering like, like what do all these tasks that I've been assigned to do, like what are they doing? It feels like I'm just sort of monotonously going through the motions day to day. And there's a reason that some of you feel that way because you are, you are checked out. You're frequently distracted doing everything that you can think of to do except what you're supposed to be doing in the moment you feel trapped under this mountain of responsibility and routine. And to you, it's so annoying, it's uninteresting, it's draining. And so you do the bare minimum and you mutter underneath your breath about everything you hate and you daydream about a different kind of life. That deep down, if you're honest, you know that you're not really willing to actually work for. You just hope that it'll happen somehow. And if this feels like an indictment, if this feels like uncomfortably familiar to you, you should know that you're not alone. In fact, I think if we were to look around at our society and have honest conversations with each other, what we would find is that a lot of people feel stuck between this life that isn't working and a life they don't wanna work for. They're sort of trapped in the middle. I don't like this, I'd like that. I don't really wanna do what it's necessary to get that. Um, and I, I'm not really sure what to do. And when we find ourselves stuck in this place, we often teeter between escapism and fatalism. Escapism is sort of this idea that says like, I will do anything else to avoid doing this. You ever find yourself there in the middle of a workday? You're like, I should really do this report or see what's happening on Twitter. <laughs> because that's never a waste of time. Um, and so we get drawn into all this other stuff. Maybe we even find ourselves doing other work except for the work that's due because we're just in a moment of escapism. And then fatalism is this idea that like, it's never gonna get any better than this. Like there's no way to make life better. There's no way for this job to be better. There's no way for me to be better. There's no way for the situation to be better. And we just feel stuck, which then of course makes us want to escape and then when we feel bad about escaping, we're like, no, I'm gonna buckle down. And then the fatalism kicks in and it just becomes the cycle for a lot of us. When things get challenging, a lot of us distract ourselves with something that is more comfortable or comforting. And we want to seem relaxed and nonchalant about it. But in reality, a constant craving for comfort masquerades as being easygoing, but it stems from deep-seated anxiety over the stress and demands of life. We cope because we feel trapped. 
right? We see work as this thing that is pulling us away from or preventing us from doing what we actually want to do because the goal is to relax and that's not what this feels like. And in a lot of our minds, it's not my fault. It's other people. It is a lack of opportunity. It's the unfair circumstances stacked against me. There is nothing I can do about this except for some things that I don't want to do, but I'm not going to do that. And so I'm just going to phone it in and pray for a miracle. And I think some of us have been there, right? Uh, We're so overwhelmed that proactivity just seems pointless. And so we just keep going through the motions and praying that something just miraculously shifts. I wonder if you've ever had the thought like, you know, man, I wish I could win the lottery. That would change everything. How many of you have a relative that says this regularly, right? Uh, Some of you are like, I don't wanna raise my hand because they're next to me and it's just gonna get a bit weird on the way home. They know who they are. They're like, I wish I could win the lottery. I mean, I don't play, but like some, maybe I will still. I don't know how it works. I'll find a ticket in the street, you know? And man, I would do so much. I would quit this job. I'll tell you that much right now. I would quit this job because I hate this place. I don't like these people. I don't like what I have to do. And I would finally get around to doing what I've always wanted to do. Nothing. Oh, gosh. That's the dream. Just doing nothing and a lot of it. And my life would just be a permanent vacation. It would be paradise. Would it, though? Like, if you really could just do whatever you want to do, if you really had so much money that you could do whatever you wanted to do and you could literally do nothing all the time except for just rest and relax, would that be the paradise that you've made it out to be or would it feel like a living hell? Because if you spend much time talking to uh, a lot of retirees, they don't seem to have this idea that like, man, I'm living the dream. I remember having a conversation not too long ago um, with somebody that I know that's in their, in their 80s. And I was asking them about like, man, what do you do all day? And they're like, well, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And I'm like, you should do whatever you want. That's so awesome. And she looked at me in the eyes, like her smile fell and she was like, it is hell. I am so bored. I don't know what my life is about. It was one of the saddest conversations I ever had. I was like literally anticipating her being like, it is so great. It is amazing. I ring this bell. They bring me whatever I want. It's phenomenal. It's so good. And yet in her mind, she was like, it's not that great. It's, it's actually a little bit purposeless. Now, granted, like not everybody hates their, their work, right? Which is why if you're one of these people uh, who doesn't hate your work, there's a lot of other people that look at you and hate you. Um, and <laughs> what they're thinking is like, yeah, that's because you have a good job, so shut up. You know what I mean? Like, it's your situation is not like mine at all. But I wonder if you've ever been around someone who has like a really low status job, but they seem incredibly happy. And there's something about it that just kind of like confuses you because it's a job that you would never want, that you would never do. If you had it, you would hate your life, but they seem to love theirs. And you're like, what is going on here? I remember when I was in junior high, I got a job, one of the first jobs I ever had, I got a job at a deli that was inside of a grocery store. And I worked alongside this guy who was in his late 40s. 
and we basically worked the same job. Like he was not the boss. We were just coworkers. And we made sandwiches and fried chicken and like carved out meats for people. I mean, it was basic deli sort of a job. It was the first job I could get because it was the job that like it, people were willing to just give to a 14 year old with no experience who probably shouldn't have been there. And I think it was illegal. I'm just, I'm like thinking back, I'm like, is that, are you allowed to work at that age? I don't know, but I got paychecks. So, um, and the thing that was crazy about it is we, I think we pretty much made the same exact hourly wage, except like he seemed so incredibly happy to be there. Sometimes I felt annoyed that I had to drag myself into work and he loved it. And I remember one day asking him like, okay, but for serious, like, what do you really want to do? Like when this, when you get done with it, obviously that you're kind of biding your time, but like when you get out of here and you could do whatever you want to do, what would you do? And he's like, I don't understand. And I'm like, no, like what, you know, another job or like when you retire, like, what are you going to do next? Like, you know, when you're done here, you know, and he's like, retire. And I remember him laughing at me when I said that. And he's like, why would I retire? I'm living the dream. And I was like, <laughs> and he like his smile fell so quick, he was like, I'm serious. Because he genuinely loved his life. And I think about that guy a lot. Like what is it about him? Like what was it about his existence that made him feel like he was living the dream and I felt like I was just biding my time? It reminds me a lot of this story in the Old Testament. Um, after Moses, who's this big figure, sort of leads the people out of Egypt, his successor, Joshua, eventually takes over and they are finally getting to this place where they're gonna settle in the promised land where they've been sort of hiking through to get to this whole time. And the Israelites are divided up into 12 tribes and Joshua <clears throat> gives each of these tribes their allotment of land that God had promised them. And he gives Judah, the tribe of Judah, which is led by Caleb, who is this aged warrior who has this reputation for being really faithful and loyal and full of integrity. He gives him this plush lot of land that has already been cleared and there's no enemies on it. And it's like this beautiful land where everything grows there. And it's his way of sort of honoring his service and enabling him to, to sort of settle down and retire. And what is funny about this exchange is as soon as it happens, like Joshua feels like he's giving Caleb a gift and Caleb gets angry and reads it as an insult. And I just wanna read you some of this exchange. This is Joshua chapter 14, verse six. It says, uh, Caleb said to Joshua, I was 40 years old when Moses sent me to explore the land of Canaan. This is the promised land that they're in. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. And so that day, Moses solemnly promised me the land you were just walking in will be yours and your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord. As you can see, the Lord has kept me alive. I don't know if you noticed, but the Lord has kept me alive. For all these 45 years, even while Israel wandered in the desert wilderness, Today, I'm 85, and I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey. And I can still travel and fight as well as I could then, he yelled from his wheelchair. <laughs> so, so give me the hill country. I know there are descendants of Anak living there in walled towns. There's like giant people. Um, 
but if the Lord is with me, I'll drive them out, just as the Lord said. And I mean, I think there's a little bit of hyperbole here where he's saying like, I'm just as strong. And everyone's like, I mean, not just as strong, but I see what you're saying. You're in good shape for your age. And I will give you that, okay? But 40 year old you would wipe the floor with 85 year old you, okay? You were, I don't know if you've seen any pictures. There's no photographs available because it hasn't been invented, but like you were in great shape, man. Um, and what I think is interesting is instead of taking it easy and doing nothing, Caleb chooses to do the hard thing. Like even in his old age, he wants a challenge. He wants to work. And the reason that he wants this is because it's what makes life meaningful, enjoyable, and fulfilling. In his mind, putting him out to pasture would be stealing his purpose. Because in his mind, he sees work as channeling your creativity, effort, and energy into helping humanity thrive and flourish. And he feels like, man, I've still got a lot left in me to give and to do. And if there's nothing for me to work towards or work on, what am I doing? I know everybody else has been dreaming about relaxing, but not me. And where did he get this idea? His, his faith tradition. In fact, the Old Testament begins with God working to build a paradise and put people to work in it. But interestingly, once he does this, he crafts this perfect paradise, he doesn't just you know, hand out Mai Tais and free jet skis to everybody, he puts them to work, right? This is Genesis chapter one, verse 27. God creates two people, there's no sin in the world, this is what happens. God created human beings in his own image and then blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So verse 28, the second verse here, is their job description in paradise. Some of you are like, me and God have a different idea of paradise, okay? I pictured it with like no jobs. <laughs> I mean, maybe jobs for other people, but not me. I wouldn't be working in my version of paradise. But God sort of begins the human story by presenting people with his incomplete creation and saying like, let's make something together with these raw materials. Like I intentionally, it's not an accident, I intentionally left the job unfinished because I wanna finish it with you. And so what do humans do? Like in response to this, according to this story, they make and raise babies they build communities, they craft healthy cultures, they combine and create and innovate and organize. He's not telling them to exploit the earth or to leave it completely untouched. He wants them to utilize it and make something out of it, move it around and rearrange it and make things better. Because in God's mind, he sees work as a gift. He sees work as this creative act, an adventure, a privilege. Do you? Do you view work as this creative act, as an adventure, as a privilege? This passage tells us that we're made in God's image, like that part of who we are is formed by who he is. And so what is God like? And according to this story, he is a worker. Like that's one of the first ways that God is introduced. What is God like? He's a worker. In fact, the Hebrew word used to describe the kind of work that God is doing in Genesis is the word that means ordinary human work. 
as if to say, God himself is not above grunt work, dirty work, common work, sweaty, exhausting material labor on behalf of other people. And maybe this is not how you imagine God. It definitely was not how the people who originally heard this story imagined God. In fact, every other creation myth uh, around this time in history of the people groups that surrounded um, the Israelites, they described their gods as looking down on certain types of work. This is why they created humans, right? That the gods created humans as cheap slave labor to do the dirty work for them. And then once they had that, their gods could do the thing that gods ought to be doing, right? Just sitting back, relaxing, being catered to by other people because that is paradise, and in ancient cultures, each had their own creation myth. And their origin stories didn't just reveal people's gods, but their goals. They were trying to describe like, what God was like and ultimately what people should aspire to be. The Greeks imagined a high-minded philosopher king. The Romans, a cultured statesman. But the, the Hebrews... Imagine God is showing up as a gardener in the Old Testament and a carpenter in the New Testament, which actually the word that's being used is more that of like a, uh, an odd job day laborer. Why does scripture do this? It's, it's the Bible's way of pouring eternal purpose into all different sorts of work, including probably whatever it is that you do. In other words, God is willing to do whatever helps humanity thrive and flourish, no matter how small or simple or mundane or dirty or difficult or unseen or uncelebrated. And this is the crazy part. God doesn't just uh, do this work. He enjoys doing it. And then he tells us, you're made in my image which means you're gonna find fulfillment in doing the same thing. Join me in making the world better little by little, day by day, one task at a time. And this paradigm is the one that actually motivates Caleb to trade in taking it easy in paradise to take up hard work in his latter years aimed at purpose. And this wasn't just the philosophy of Old Testament old timers. Okay, this was the philosophy of the entirety of the New Testament church as well. The Apostle Paul in another place writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, the Lord has given each of us our own work to do. We are God's co-workers. In other words, it's an echo of this idea rooted in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. We're designed to work together alongside God to help humanity thrive and flourish. So let me ask you this. Is that how you think of the dirty details of your job? Like when you show up to work every day, are you just like, you know what I'm doing today? I am partnering with God and other people to do whatever I can to help humanity thrive and flourish. Let's do it. I think for a lot of us, that's not what we show up with. And if you were miserable in your job, 
is the problem like what you're doing or the way you're doing it? I wonder if you've ever wondered, like, would God do this job? And then also, how would he do this job? Because here's the reality. Some of you are miserable because you are doing a job that God would not do. And so it feels sort of purposeless because it is not helping humanity thrive and flourish. It's robbing something from humanity, right? God would not be a pimp. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I don't know. I don't mean to offend any pimps in the room, but I'm just telling you the truth. Can we just speak the truth in love? And now obviously there's a bunch of other jobs too, but like I, I'm, I'm not trying to single that one out, but that one is wrong. And some of you, it's not that God wouldn't do your job because God is willing to do a lot of dirty jobs, right? Um, it, it, maybe it's not that God wouldn't do your job, but that he definitely wouldn't do it the way you're doing it. And I think that's probably more the case than not. Like, I wonder if you, how it would sort of shift your mindset to imagine Jesus showing up to wherever it is you work and being assigned the same job description that you've been given and imagining how he would do that work. Like how would he invest himself? Because we know from scripture that uh, Jesus never once in scripture was like, <laughs> guys, this is a little beneath me. <laughs> do you know who I am? Kind of a big deal. I'll give you a hint, born of a virgin. Uh, there's like a whole holiday around me. You guys will catch up. Um, never. Never. He always threw himself into what he did and did it great. One of my favorite theologians um, has this quote saying like, um, we don't know a lot about Jesus before he started ministering, but we know he worked. And he's like, it's really hard for me to imagine a God that makes bad tables. Interesting, right? You imagine like God is here on earth and like, what, man, what are you investing your heart into today that will help humanity thrive and flourish? I'm gonna get these legs to balance, I'll tell you that much. We're not gonna do that thing where you sit down, it's like, and you gotta put a card under there. Not on my watch! I'm gonna get under there, do some sanding real good, okay? I got a little tendonitis. And my Jesus forearms, but you know what? I'm going to keep going after it. Because I'm going to give myself fully to whatever it is is in front of me. This is how I imagine Jesus approaching all of existence from all the information we have about him. There's this, there's this scene that gets repeated in Genesis where God, he does some work and then he, he'll step back and he'll look at what he did and he'll say, this is good. And he does this over and over and over again as if to communicate like he is satisfied. He gave his best, he did a good job. His investment was worthwhile. He's proud of his contribution. And the reason I bring that up is because I think we're told in the very beginning of scripture, the goal of how we ought to feel at the end of the workday, at the end of the work week, at the end of our year, that we ought to be able to step back. And even though like what you did didn't make a ton of money, and even though what you're doing isn't prestigious and there are some things, maybe a lot of things that you really don't like about your company or your organization, you look at what you did and how you did it and you can honestly say, that is good. 
the part I did is good because I'm partnering with God to help humanity thrive. And the work is ongoing, like we haven't arrived, I haven't arrived, but I'm giving my best and my part matters. And I gotta tell you, if you genuinely wanna find fulfillment in your work, instead of just showing up and daydreaming your life away, you're gonna have to abandon avoidance and embrace accountability. Because a lot of us are, we are avoiding what it is we're supposed to be doing. We're avoiding, avoiding true engagement. We're avoiding having conversations we need to have. We're avoiding the hard work that we are called to do. We're avoiding the changes that we're actually called to make in the organization that we're in. We're avoiding having to, to like get creative about how to make this interesting to me. And this is why accountability is so helpful. Not just accountability of, of people like making sure you're working, but accountability in your life of people that are leaned in and challenging you when it comes to your mindset about work that you don't get to this place where you're phoning it in, praying for a miracle, but where you are giving your best to what is in front of you because you believe it matters. That's fulfillment. Maybe paradise is not this sort of remote location where we kick back, we sip on something and we do nothing. At least in God's mind, paradise is where you realize that you were made to contribute something and you lean into that something and you give it your best and you realize that even if I can't see it yet, it matters. It matters. And, and, or in the words of Paul, and I love this, this is what he says after earlier, where he says, nobody who's unwilling to work should eat. He circles back to say this, just more of that same rant. Chapter three, verse 11. We heard some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to work. As for the rest of you, never get tired of doing good. And I want you to catch this because I think that this is not just an indictment on his culture, but an indictment on our culture as well. He's saying, when we don't have meaningful work to devote ourselves to, we meddle in other people's business. Which is not good for you or other people or the faith. And I don't know what it looked like back then, but today it looks like griping and complaining and posting constantly, but not being willing to put in the hard work to sacrificially serve other people and make the everyday lives of those around us better. And how do you do this? According to the New Testament, one small monotonous shift at a time. According to the New Testament, which is really just building on the principles of the Old Testament, Christians ought to be the people that every other person looks forward to working with. Because they're the best at what they do. 
not because they're the smartest, but because they never phone it in. Like there ought to be people who are like, Christians, I don't get it. I don't, they believe weird stuff. I don't know that some guy died, he came back, he saved the world. I don't get it, okay? But I'll tell you this, if I have a chance to hire a Christian or a non-Christian, I kind of want to hire the Christian. You know why? Because they work harder than everybody else. Because they show up with a smile on their face. Because they give themselves to the work. Because they somehow believe that what we are doing here matters. These people that we hired at entry-level positions believe they're living the dream that they are changing the world, that somehow with their investment in what they're doing today and the way they bring themselves to and give themselves to their work, that they are partnering with the God of the universe to bring heaven to earth in filing these reports, in making these sandwiches, in sweeping this parking lot, in sending these emails. What would happen if you showed up tomorrow to your job and before you went in, you just paused in the car and you thought to yourself, God, how would you approach this day? Give me the power of your Holy Spirit to do this day like you would do it. And may it make a difference that echoes into eternity, even if I never see it. And I'll tell you, day after day of approaching your life this way, adds up to a whole lot of fulfillment that you cannot find on a beach unless your job is working at a beach. Let's pray. God, I'm, I'm grateful for the way in which you made us. God, I'm grateful that you don't just wanna give us life, but you wanna show us how to live in a way that is meaningful, in a way that, in a way that actually contributes something to the lives and to the hearts and to the existence and the futures of the people around us. And God, some of us, we are flailing in situations that we've just lost heart. We've lost hope. And for some of us, it, it is that maybe we need, to, we need to look at something else, that we have a life that's not working and we need to look at something else. We need to work towards something else. And some of us, we just need to do our work like you would do it. We don't need a job change. We need a, an attitude change. We need a, a perception change. And God, I pray that you would gift us that, that you would keep in our minds the purpose of why we exist, to point people to you and Remind us that you had these moments where sometimes you pointed people to who you were through teaching and prayer and miracles. And sometimes you did it through chores and odd jobs and befriending the people in your workplace and endowing whatever it is you were doing in the moment, no matter how small, dirty, uncomfortable, low status you gave it your best. God, make us like you in this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona 
or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.